ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. listening to A Big Country, I'm Clint Jasper. This week we'll meet a veteran GP who's also a qualified pilot and is helping to address the rural doctor shortage. He's flying himself to see patients in small country towns at the age of 81. We'll discover how camels are coming to the rescue of graziers in Western Queensland, making themselves useful as weed-eating machines. And we'll hear how a cheese lover went from establishing an online cheese delivery service to launching his own range of hand crafted artisan cheeses. It's all about really supporting small local dairy farmers in particular, focusing on great quality but also sustainability in the farming practices and also I really believe that cheese is the one thing that brings people together. It's a great community builder and if I can use cheese to bring people together that's just a wonderful thing. Connecting consumers to dairy farmers through cheese, that story is coming up. First today, if you've got a couple of olive trees in your backyard, they might provide enough fruit to brine and snack on at home, but probably not enough to make your own olive oil. What if you pooled your resources with your neighbours? As Larissa Smith discovered, the concept of community olive pressing is growing in popularity. I don't know. Oh, no, you took me Frantoya, I'd say, or Corrigola. Are they ripe? They are ready? Uh, perfect. At a sweet spot, I'd say. You'll do well with those. I've called into Lantara Grove near Exeter in the Tamar Valley. It's an established olive grove run by Martin and Sophie Grace. If you get a nice avocado texture, that'll uh, be the, the, the sweet spot for getting the oil out. This morning, there's been a steady stream of people dropping off buckets of maroon and green olives they've picked in their backyard. Because we didn't actually fleece the whole tree, because yeah. it's impossible to do that. We but it's only one tree, so it's not bad. That's very good, yeah. 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 The It'll olives are weighed the, and tipped uh, into a large bin the before they head to the press. Jim and Jenny Rudling have turned up with a couple of buckets of olives from their tree at Hawley Beach. <laughs> well, we started off by trying to put them in a brine, but I think we figured out that there was the wrong type of olive for an eating olive. Actually, we came up here mm. and had yeah. might have been this guy that we had a chat to, and he went through the process of pickling olives and we thought, nah, this isn't going to be, isn't going to happen. So, um, yeah, we they were very plentiful this morning, so we thought we'll pick them and do something productive with them. Are you pleasantly surprised how much yeah. you've got? Yeah, yeah they're very happy with that, yeah. Hmm. You get some oil at the end of it. That's, that's a plan. <laughs> 21.68. Uh, it's about half of last year's, but that's all right. <laughs> no problem at all. We're Liz and Bruce Dunn, and we live at Roseview, so we're in a very sunny, sheltered part of the world where our olives grow, probably the reason why they're big and black. <laughs> um, yeah, so we haven't come very far, just, you know, 10 minutes down the road. How old's your tree? The big tree's about 30 years old, and the others are about 12. We get the bulk of our olives off the 30-year-old tree. Not usually. this year, though. Usually. <laughs> and we've got this new one that, that we have, a little baby one, which has only been planted for a year, but it actually was cut covered in little green olives this year, so we've brought them along, yeah. And so I don't know whether they'll turn into big olives yet, whether it's the same sort as the other ones that we've got along the fence line. Yeah. And you're hoping to get a couple of bottles? Oh, well, we got four last year. Yep. We gave a bit of it away. We're a bit disappointed now because 
we had to buy some more. <laughs> we bought some more of Martin's. <laughs> but we've, um, yeah, we we'll should Still get a couple stuff. of bottles, depending on what the oil content's like, because it's only about 10% last year. So hopefully it'll be more than that. It's, it's just fun coming here and seeing, you know, what your olives are like up against everyone else in a way, because you've got no idea. Yeah. They're just yeah. in your garden, falling off the tree, and, yeah. you know, pick them and find out whether they're any good is terrific. And this is a much better way of using them than it is, like, pickling them, which we haven't had much success with. And I'd much, we use olive oil every day, so it's really nice to have your own. Yeah. The reason we came up with the idea is we were being approached by people at the Harvest Launceston market stall and saying, I've got a backyard olive tree, can you make it into oil for me? The answer is one tree, probably not, unless that tree's got at least 100 kilos on it, and that would be incredibly unlikely. But when you combine your backyard tree with someone else's backyard tree with someone else's backyard tree, suddenly you start getting volumes that are big enough to be able to be put into our press and made into oil. So it makes sense to have a community harvest where people can just bring their backyard olives and and make use of them uh, we find that most people are you know they, they try brining for one or two years and they get sick of that and they say oh, look it's just easier to make into oil isn't it and we can use that it's it's something that happens in europe quite frequently when we visited the the south of france a few years back uh, we noticed that they were doing that sort of thing there as well where they'd allocate yeah one day a year when the, everyone all the the villagers would come in and bring in their backyard olives and they'd have enough oil to last them for the rest of the year uh, so it's a it's a good model and it's working really well it's it's growing every year here we're getting more and more olives every year and uh, people are just loving the oil that they get out. It's, it's fresh and it's vibrant and it's, and it's a million times better than what you'll find uh, from, from the, the supermarkets. They also love, I guess, interacting with you as a commercial grower to get some tips on how to improve their yields. Yes, that's exactly right. So we've given a few um, ideas on how to prune uh, and get them maximise the fruit out of your trees. Yeah, they're learning a lot and so that way they'll come back with, with more olives in, in future and they'll be able to um, yeah make their trees perform at their best. So we've nearly reached the cutoff point for delivery for today. How many olives do you think you've got in that large bin? Well I think that we're getting at about 350 kilos maybe 400. We've also we've got uh, nearly a 200 of our own to put in there as well so it'll be over half a tonne all up. Uh, so that should be a, a nice amount of oil It'll keep me busy for the rest of the afternoon. A few litres at least. A few litres at least. I think there'll be a lot, a lot of litres. I think people will be quite surprised. That it looks like we've got a good combination of varieties in there and colours. And so I think that uh, it'll it'll result in a, in a good oil and, uh, and, a, and a nice flavour based on the look of the olives. Personally for you, how's the harvest gone and how are the olives coming off on your grove? The harvest has gone very well. We're getting lovely looking fruit. I'm very happy with the, the flavour that's coming out. It's got a beautiful creamy mouthfeel, the oil this year. We're uh, a third of the way into our pruning program, so um, the overall volumes are lower because we've been um, uh, pruning the trees down, but they've been responded really well on the bits that we haven't pruned. So uh, it's a six year program we've got to rejuvenate the, the canopy of the grove. By the time we come out of it, we'll end up with very high volumes uh, going to the future. Long term plans, uh, you've got some young trees in the ground still expanding here? Yes, we sure do. So we've planted quite a lot of new varieties. Uh, some of them are, are table olives, uh, particularly the California Queens and uh, the, the Colossus Calamatas. Lovely large fruit, beautiful for eating and also some beautiful new oil varieties, uh, Ojiblanca and uh, Verdale and Piqual 
So uh, yeah, we're hoping that when they um, come online that they'll be doing very well. Actually, we'll, we'll get a small crop from the uh, Orchid Blanca and um, the Piquail this year, so I'm, I'm looking forward to picking those in the very near future. I think some of them we might even put into the second community press we've got later in the month. This is Pombing. Ship was safe from the bullet. For camel breeder Paul Keegan, his camels are more than livestock. They all get names and they all have distinct personalities. Oh, they're like, like your children. Some have got more personality than others, obviously. Think like him, but some are more docile. And uh, this is Scruffy behind me. He's, he's about 13, 12 year old now. He's a quiet bull. Hello, I'm Madeline McCosker reporting from Western Queensland. While camels may not be the sort of livestock you'd normally expect to see in paddocks in this part of the country, they are becoming more popular amongst graziers who are using them in their fight against invasive weeds. The prickly acacia weed has proven to be an expensive and hard to control problem. Until now, a study that involves camels has found the animals are weed-eating machines. Every place should have at least 15, 20 camels, you know, just to tap away at the flowers, you know, on the, on the prickle trees. For more than 20 years, prickly acacia has been a literal thorn in the backside of graziers. It's typically controlled through chemical spraying, but a trial run by Desert Channels Queensland since 2021 is showing how camels can help slow the spread of the invasive weed. Natalie Pierce is a senior project officer with DCQ and she reckons the camels are proving to be a worthy investment. Prickly acacia has the potential to be an enormously expensive problem for landholders depending on the size of their infestation and the treatment techniques that they're using. So camels, particularly for people who may not be able to control their prickly acacia problem in the short term can save a huge amount of chemical, particularly in the retreatment costs. So the main benefit of the camels is that by eating all the flowers and the seed pods, they reduce the amount of seeds generally over a period of about four years if they're kept in the area of the infestation so that once a landholder is able to control their uh, prickly acacia infestation, they have much less work to do then because there's a minimal regrowth after the camels have been in that area. She says because camels eat the seeds and don't poop them out like cows or sheep, less seeds are spreading. Grass is really only about 15-20% of their diet. The rest is uh, herbage and the prickly acacia flowers and seeds. Each flower on these trees produces up to 10 seeds and these can persist in the environment for a while. So it's really important that we be able to control them. Because they eat uh, about 360 flowers per day, uh, that is about 3,600 potential seeds per day that are not going back into the landscape. So there's a real potential there for camels when they eat prickly acacia flowers and prickly acacia seeds to prevent the, th the further spread of those seeds in the environment. As the spread of prickly acacia slows, word is spreading fast about the success of the trial. Graziers who were unsure about the benefits of running a small mob of camels are seeing firsthand the impact they're having on large infestations. 
Emma Francis from Caulfield Downs north of Winton says a field day held by DCQ last month was what convinced her. Because cattle reproduce the prickly acacia and when they hear that the camel doesn't, it's really exciting to hear that because with the cattle it's sort of a never-ending battle when they're reproducing it. While weed control is the primary reason most graziers invest in the animals, emerging markets like camel milk and meat are ways to increase the profit margin for businesses. Winton butcher Dan Nichols says camel meat is a largely untapped market. It is seriously one of Australia's greatest organic sources of protein. There's no two ways about it. It is a really good product. A lot of people can barely tell the difference between beef and cattle. It has so much uh, in common. You know, it just really is. It would be good to see a lot more people eating it, I believe, yeah. And while everyone from graziers to butchers seem to be singing the praises of camels, they do come with a warning. Camel breeder Paul Keegan has had a few run-ins with the animals over the years. Over 40 years, I've had a few disputes. One camel I had a sore on her neck and I squeezed it and she didn't like it. So then I walked over to check my other old camel out and I turned around and I see her coming. I thought this time went real good. I stopped for a split second and I was going to dive under the camel to get out of the way. I was too slow and she lunged at me, kneed me fair in the mouth and blood missing out. <laughs> and... Uh, then she gave me a couple of dinner plates in the ribs and uh, so every time I see it, well she's gone now but every time I see her I used to throw a stone at her <laughs> and she, she was pretty fast old bambi Camel breeder Paul Keegan finishing that story from Madeline McCosker in Western Queensland. Before that, reporter Larissa Smith went along to Community Olive Pressing Day at Lentara Grove in northern Tasmania's Tamar Valley. You can find more on both of those stories on the RN homepage at abc.net.au slash rn. Just look for a big country. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN. Still to come, the man with the mission to bring people together over cheese. And flying to consultations, we'll meet David Cook, a much-loved local doctor on the New South Wales mid-north coast. The 81-year-old GP and trained pilot is adding to the medical manpower of small rural towns by flying in to see patients. He told reporter Emma Siosian he has no plans to put down the landing gear on his career anytime soon. It's a clear Saturday morning and David Cook is preparing to take to the skies in his vintage de Havilland chipmunk aircraft. The aeroplane is 1950 vintage, so it's 73 years old. Not as old as me though. <laughs> At 81, David has been both a pilot and a doctor for more than 50 years, including time with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Each weekend, he leads an aerial display over the Port Macquarie region as part of a small group of experienced pilots. They call themselves the Bobcats, and their formations require intense concentration. When you are following a leading aeroplane, you're not looking at your instruments or the ground or anything. You're just looking at the, more or less the back of his head and you're positioning yourself. It's a sort of real workout. <laughs> for us all, but we all love it. Uh, the pilots are, inter as I said, one's a uh, retired uh, fighter pilot, the other one is a uh, uh, retired 
Jumbo captain, now the guy that was there this morning is an eye specialist in town. He says flying is a passion that's been passed through generations. My grandfather flew in 1915 in the First World War and then my father was a Spitfire pilot and uh, he went to England and was killed a month before I was born in 1941 in Yorkshire. Um, and we often go and visit his little grave. Um, my mother then married another bomber captain in 1945 and he was killed just before the end of the war. And then after the war, my, my mother married a flying boat captain who uh, survived and brought me up. And um, so I've been flying since 1958 in the Air Force Reserve while I was doing first year medicine. With medical services scarce in some parts of the region, Dr Cook's work plane is a handy means of transport to the nearby town of Southwest Rocks. All the small country towns are very short of doctors. Port Macquarie's the same. So I just uh, uh, come up here two mornings a week to add to the medical manpower of the town. He then hops on his motor scooter and heads back to the modified cow paddock he uses as a runway to return to Port Macquarie. Uh, it's only 11 minutes to get to Southwest Rocks by air, so I'm up there in no time. The owner chases the cows off the airstrip before I come. We'll make sure they're not on the strip and I land there and I have a little motor scooter which I put into town on. People ask me if I'm going to retire at 81 and I say, oh, look, I actually love work. I was a flying doctor for years in the outback and uh, so old habits die hard. When I was a flying doctor, my, my boss used to say, you're not a doctor that flies, you're a pilot that practices medicine. So uh, uh, it's just being up there and in a medium in which you can move in all directions. I come from a long line of pilots. I'm the black sheep being a doctor, actually, because uh, both my sons are jet captains, my father and my grandfather are pilots, so <laughs> it's a bit of a disease with the family. I've got six granddaughters and, uh, and soon to be a grandson, and one of them hopefully will be the next generation of pilots. If you talk to any pilot, they get a faraway look in their eyes and just say, we just like being up there. Seven years ago I launched Cheese Therapy. The whole idea of it is promoting small artisan cheese makers right around the country. And I deliver cheese straight into people's homes wherever they are in the country. It's been an amazing journey. From establishing a successful online cheese delivery business, cheese lover Sam Penny has taken the leap into launching his own range of handmade cheeses. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols, and I'm chatting with Sam Penny as he celebrates the launch of a range of cheese and dairy products on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. He's talking me through his journey from cheese salesman to artisan cheesemaker. It's exciting. I'm launching my own cheese brand. It's called Max and Tom. And it's all about really supporting small local dairy farmers in particular, focusing on great quality, but also sustainability in the farming practices. And also, I really believe that cheese is the one thing that brings people together. It's a great community builder. And if I can use cheese to bring people together, that's just a wonderful thing. So how did you turn from salesman to artisan cheesemaker? 
Oh, look, I think one of the things about anything, it all comes down to what your core values are. I gave a TEDx talk in December down in Brisbane, all on why people should buy direct from artists and producers. And that's things like visiting farmers markets, uh, going direct to their website, buying from the artist and producer, even visiting those roadside honesty stalls. And I just thought, I think I really should be doing this myself as well. And I think I need to just walk the talk, as they say. So that's why I've been working on Max and Tom for quite a few months and here it is. Today is my big launch. What is this beautiful round creation? I love this thing. It's called a cultured butter. I call it coastal cultured and it's a lot different to a normal butter in that the milk has been fermented for a little bit before it's churned into the butter. So it gives it a nice sourness. It's salted. It is, I guess, the creme de la creme of butter. It's something that you just don't find in shops these days, but I tell you what, it elevates your cooking it elevates just simply whacking it on a cracker it is unbelievable and what have you got in these eskies here well i've got a beautiful white mold cheese a nice triple cream called noosa white my hard cheese is a northern italian style hard cheese called moffat sand beautiful blue which is gorgonzola style that's called budrum blue and then i've got a beautiful wash rind a nice orange glowing cheese and it's called Pacific Sunrise and it's all about yeah, just being able to really focus on what the Sunshine Coast region is and highlighting the great produce that we have here. Are you relying on existing cheesemakers to get this out or have you started your own factory? No, so I use the milk from Mulaney Dairies. Uh, I use a factory down on the Gold Coast to make the cheese for me because there's no suitable facility up here on the Sunshine Coast. They're in demand, the ones that are there. Oh, I know, exactly. And then hopefully uh, getting it out through retailers, I'll be at Noosa Farmers Market every Sunday and it's all about being part of that community again. One of the really disturbing things about the dairy industry in particular but also a lot of other farming right around Australia is that 1980 we had 22,000 dairy farms. Today we've got less than 6,000. That consolidation and a lot of the big multinationals moving into Australia taking over a lot of our farming it's really disturbing so when you buy direct from an artisan producer what we're able to do is to make small batch farming more viable and how great would it be if families could get back to owning a farm and actually making a living out of it just from their small plot it'd be amazing now correct me if I'm wrong but haven't you been an extreme sportsman in the past <laughs> Oh, uh, maybe. Uh, I'm the only person in the world who's ever attempted to swim the English Channel in winter in December. That was cold. I ended up with hypothermia. I swam the English Channel, ice miles and a whole range of other stupid things. Cheese is just part of the safer. joy. <laughs> I think safer. Yeah, it's... I think when you really follow your passion, it makes it part of your life and it's it's just enjoyable. You know, I love doing stupid stuff in the sporting world, but also Max and Tom, it's something new, it's innovative. Uh, we've got some great new cheeses coming out and just being able to launch a new brand that really is bright and vibrant and fun and it's not taking itself too seriously. Let's have a look. All right, so how about we start with a beautiful cheese, which is called Noosa White. Now, the reason I 
call this Noosa White. I think that it's the perfect cheese to go with champagne, bubbles, fizz, whatever you want to I call it. I can feel the white linen coming on now. Oh, exactly. It's This is pure white linen and board shorts. And the great thing about Noosa White, it's a triple cream brie style of cheese. One of the great things is that it gets better when it warms up, just like Noosa. When Noosa's warm, it is ideal. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's open this beautiful little baby up and you notice it's just, it is like white linen. Now this, you can see just how crisp and pure that is. As if everyone's sitting along Hastings Street. Now, would you like to try some? Yes. All right. We've only just got it out, so we haven't got it at its maximum no, softness, so, which I suppose no, is the... That's exactly right. But you know, one of the great things about cheese, and particularly the way that I've created this cheese, is that it's great straight out of the fridge. But if you can let this warm up to room temperature, leave it out for about half an hour, an hour at best, it's really going to warm up release a lot of its flavours. It'll get nice and gooey as well. And it's just a beautiful, creamy cheese. Well, I just tried that and that is delicious, Sam Penny. Good start. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm proud of it. You know, this is months in the making and I think it's absolutely fantastic. This stuff excites me. Sam Penny, who's launched his own line of handmade cheeses. He was speaking with reporter Jennifer Nichols. You can read more of Sam's stories and all of the stories on today's program. You'll find them on the RN homepage. Head online to abc.net.au slash rn and look for A Big Country. That's the show for today. I'm Clint Jasper and I'll be back next week with more great stories from Australia's regions. I'll talk to you then. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.